Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for that beautiful intro, Alex. I think you have me well summed, actually. That's really very right. So it is always a privilege to share with you guys. Um, I'm really thrilled to be preaching on this particular passage as well, which may be familiar, but it has some weird bits, and maybe those are the weird bits that we tend to gloss over because they're weird and we don't know how to pass them or make sense of them. But before we dive into the passage as a whole, I have a question up here, which is its end. So I've kind of spoiled where I'm going. Um, I want to ask us the question that Jesus asks at its end. And it's one that I would love for everyone to be thinking through for the rest of this sermon. Even if you're not listening, um, think about this question. In Mark 8:29, having just asked the disciples who people are saying he is, Jesus turns this question on his closest friends. And he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? He says, who do you say I am, Peter? You know, who do you say I am, John? Who do you say I am, Jed? It's one of those questions that gets right to the heart of the matter. And my suspicion, um, and something that we're going to talk through today, I promise this will be straightforward, um, is that Jesus wasn't actually interested in an easy answer to this question. Because who, you, who do you say I am isn't a question that you answer once and finally. It's a question that we answer with our lives. Now, recently I read about an Old Testament scholar who used to tell his students and I love this, and I think we've actually been using this language without people realizing it, so this is meant to be, um, that we really can't hear what the stories of the Bible are saying until we hear them as stories about ourselves. And I really love that advice. So as we move through just this short passage, I want to invite you to imagine yourself in these stories about Jesus and about his disciples. Um, but to imagine yourself in the boat, with the disciples as it leaves the shore. To imagine yourself as that stranger who is blind and desperate for hope. To imagine that you are being asked, you are being asked, who you say that Jesus is. So I'm going to go through this in stages. And the first part of our passage, oh, the text looks larger on my screen, so apologies <laughs> for, for if you, like me, love reading and thus have suffered short-sightedness. <laughs> Um, this is from Mark 8:14 through to 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So at this point in Mark's gospel, we encounter Jesus and the disciples in a boat, or sort of on the foreshore, having left a boat. And they've just pushed off from another foreshore, from the other side, 
where Jesus had miraculously fed a crowd of 4,000 with seven loaves. So this do-you-remember moment is really fresh. The context of this story is significant because unlike other stories that we have of miraculous feeding, Mark ends his account with an encounter with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees um, test Jesus and they ask for signs from heaven. And there's this really beautiful, um, really beautiful word where Mark tells us that Jesus listens to the Pharisees and he sighs deeply. I don't have it up here. Uh, but it's a word that in Greek carries a sense of, of despair because he had literally just performed a miracle. He had met the needs of a starving crowd and now Jesus is pushed to the brink by a group of nagging Pharisees who want a little bit more evidence of who he is. Just one more sign. So Jesus and the disciples leave and they jump in a boat and they cross to the other side. Now I love how human that is, right? Exhausted by the Pharisees' lack of faith, Jesus just gets out of there and flees with a group of friends. Almost immediately, as you can see in our story, Jesus sees that even those that have known him for months, in this case, for about a year, um, are not much better than the Pharisees. I have a little skeleton running across the room. I want to make that a symbol of something, but it's just unsettling. Um, now, it's ominous more than anything, isn't it? So, you know, even with, just think about this, even with all those baskets of bread, the disciples have forgotten to bring any with them. Um, which is, I said this to Renee, something I'm guilty of, like, constantly. <laughs> um, and my sense is that maybe they just didn't anticipate jumping back in the boat so soon, right? But Jesus did not want to linger with the Pharisees. So one of them just grabs one loaf, and they jump into the boat, and they push off. Now, Jesus, in this passage, overhears the disciples um, and their anxious concerns as they're looking at this single loaf of bread. And he tells them to be careful. He says this really odd thing. He says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, remember how I said to imagine yourself in the story. Imagine yourself among the disciples. You've left the site of a miraculous feeding, but now you're breadless, except for just this one loaf. And you're starting to worry about your stomachs. And imagine yourself now as Jesus, and you still have that sense of frustration, having been rattled by the faithlessness of those Pharisees who keep demanding signs but won't listen to the word made flesh among them. This instance, I think, is a moment of classic misunderstanding. See, Jesus warns the disciples about yeast. And this, and I remember, Ains, we did this great experiment um, where we made yeast. Um, sometimes successfully. Um, and yeast in the New Testament almost always is a sign of corruption and unholiness. And fresh from an encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus is thinking about this, right? He's thinking about stubbornness. And he says to his disciples, faithlessness can ferment in your hearts just like yeast. And the disciples are thinking about that bread, right? And they think, you know what? Jesus must be talking about literal yeast. He's concerned that we have no bread. 
Who do you say I am? That question reverberates through the gospel and the disciples thinking about bread misunderstand who Jesus is. And he dresses them down, right? He rebukes them in this language that I think many of us have heard before. He says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? Now, I think that we, and maybe I I sometimes interpret these kinds of passages as if it's just disciples are missing the deep meaning of Jesus, right? Um, As if the disciples should have had those really good answers when he tells them strange parables or asks them difficult questions. But I think in this passage, something about seeing and hearing becomes really clear. Distracted, hungry, forgetful, the disciples just fail to see who Jesus is. And if only they had remembered that miracle of provision, maybe a day before, they would have known he's not worried about bread. If they knew him at all, they would know he's not the kind of rabbi that goes around worrying about food. Jesus has just left a group of squabbling Pharisees and he jumps into a boat with his friends who should have known better And they miss it, like I think we all do. I'm struck in this passage at the desire of Jesus just to be known, right? He wants to be known. He's not hiding himself from his friends, but I think he is disappointed that despite this time together, they still worry that he's going to get angry at them for forgetting bread. Despite all their time knowing Jesus, they worry about bread, He's just inviting them to know him and to be like him and to see him in others. So in the next part of the passage, they come to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people... They look like trees walking around. See, this is the weird bit, right? Um, And then once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So after the bread incident, Mark recalls this odd story about Jesus twice healing a man. I think it is impossible for us to read these two stories separately. All the commentaries that I read agree that the healing relates in some way to the spiritual blindness of the disciples. Now, this healing by spit, we know this story, right? And it recalls other similar miracles in the Gospels. And it reminds us, I think, of the astonishing physicality of Jesus who touches the unlovely despite being able, if he chooses, to heal through his words. Um, I'm reminded here of something, and this isn't a quote that I have up, um, something that Frederick Beekner says about the words of Jesus, um, that the truth of Jesus cannot be fully caught in any expression of the truth in words, but only in the great eloquence and complexity and simplicity of his own life. That is why Jesus doesn't say, I speak the truth, right? But what does he say? 
says, I am the truth, which is to say to those seeking the truth, it's not just what I say, but it's how I live. Here, the truth of Jesus in this story is the fact of his touching a blind man's eyes. With the disciples before, the truth of Jesus is that he is a shepherd who will feed his flock. Nowhere else in the gospel does Jesus have to redo a miracle. He doesn't have to do a do-over. No other time does Jesus ask a blind person after the healing, can they see? (coughs) The question that Jesus asks the blind man is, of course, the same question that he asked his disciples. Do you see anything? So remember to imagine yourself in this story. Imagine yourself as the blind man, partially healed. What do you see? You see people, indistinct, walking around like trees. Like the disciples, you see only partially. Now we see as a glass darkly, one day we will see him face to face. When Jesus heals the blind man fully, he sends him on his way and he tells him this strange thing. He says, be silent, right? He warns him, lest people in the village think that Jesus is just another miracle worker going around performing miracles village to village. Because even with his full sight, the blind man could not comprehend who Jesus actually was. He would have misreported it. Indeed, the final part of our passage shows that these stories about Jesus are already circulating, circulating about who he is. So Mark 8, 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Ends the same way, right? So here we've arrived at where we began. And I was tempted, and I think it is tempting, to read the healing of the blind man as just a symbolic story of the two other narratives, right? In the first one, the disciples see kind of partially or incorrectly, but now, look, Peter gets it right. And now they see clearly, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Because Peter's confession of faith in Jesus is not the full picture either. This is an instance where Peter is just being rebuked about the bread and he's trying a bit harder and he's seeing a bit clearer, right? So he goes, you know what? You're not just a prophet. You're not Elijah. You're the Messiah. And so Peter answers briskly and readily the question that Jesus asks. Peter is a lot like me sometimes. I'm really keen to get the answer right straight away. Peter offers that answer, and maybe that's our answer too, or maybe that has been our answer in the past. But what do you mean by Messiah? For Peter, the prophesied Messiah was the final anointed one, the true king of Israel, who was going to destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth, who was going to deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles, who's going to gather the faithful and rule in justice and glory. That's the popular understanding of the Messiah at this time. 
And in our passage, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. This is Jesus again, needing his disciples to see more clearly. Like the bread, Peter has the wrong idea in his mind. Like the blind man, his vision is blurry and indistinct. There's a few verses later, which I don't have, which are really famous, when Jesus is explaining how he, the Son of Man, is going to suffer and die. And Peter rebukes him. Do you remember this? Of course he does, right? He can't see Jesus for that imagined Messiah in his mind. And in a really famous response, Jesus rebukes him right back and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You're not seeing straight. Who do you say I am? Now, there is this other moment, and this might come as a surprise to you, where I think Peter sees more clearly, or I think he sees more honestly. It is a famous moment. It is a heartbreaking one. It's that moment of Peter's denial of Jesus. So there is a beautiful story, um, and this is where I have my Frederick Beekner quote. I've got, a, I've got a bunch of him. Um, and this is a beautiful story that Beekner shares about hearing a, another preacher, someone called Robert McFarlane, speak about this denial. And I'm going to just read what Beekner writes here. McFarlane was talking about St. Peter in any case, how Peter was sitting outside in the high priest's courtyard while Jesus was inside being interrogated. A maidservant came up and asked him if it wasn't true that he was a follower of this man who was at the root of all the trouble. Then Peter said, I do not know the man. It was Peter's denial, of course, McFarlane said. I do not even know who he is. It was the denial that Jesus himself had predicted and the cock raised his beak into the air and crowed just as Jesus had foretold. But it was something else too. It was a denial, but it was also the truth. Peter really did not know who Jesus was. Did not really know. And neither do any of us really know who Jesus is either. Beyond all we can find to say about him and believe about him, he remains always beyond our grasp, except maybe once in a while the hem of his garment. We should never forget that. We can love him, we can learn from him, but we can come to know him only by following him, by searching for him in his church, in his gospels, in each other. I think this is the crux of our stories in Mark 8. The disciples fail to understand Jesus because they have forgotten, if only momentarily, to trust him. The blind man's healing is a picture of how we all see at times, imperfectly, vaguely, without all the answers. And Peter's confidence that Jesus is the Messiah reveals the limits of what he understands. Because for Peter, the Messiah couldn't wash feet, couldn't weep or suffer or die. I do not know the man, Peter says, and nor do we except as we love him and learn from him and follow him. Who do you say I am? We cannot exhaust this question. I think it's an invitation to know Jesus. The answer to, the answer to it, if there is one, is found in living like him and striving to see him in others. 
Now, if you will indulge me, I have just one more quote, and it's long. Don't put it up just yet. My students always start reading before I get to it, so... Um, it's a long quote. Um, it's from Frederick Bigner again, and, and as you'll guess, he's been my own guide recently into knowing more of who this Jesus is. I think it's a beautiful reminder, to me at least, of what knowing Jesus is actually like. So, and Renee helped me with this. Um, I wouldn't normally do this, but if you would, you can prepare yourselves and maybe close your eyes. Certainly take a breath and focus on these words. And this comes from a sermon on Jesus' appearance to the disciples after he's died. And Beekner imagines himself and us as those doubting Thomases who yearn for a sign. So this is the quote. Eight days after Jesus' first appearance to the disciples, John says, Jesus came back to them again in the same room, and this time Thomas was with them. Jesus said, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless but believing. It was an extraordinary thing for him to offer. But it is as though Thomas didn't even hear him. It's as though maybe for the first time in his life, it wasn't just the fact of Jesus that he saw, but the truth of Jesus and the truth of who Jesus was for him. In light of that truth, everything else became suddenly unimportant and there was no need to touch him with his hands to make sure he was real because suddenly Thomas was so moved by the reality he was experiencing within himself that all he could do was to say something that I suspect he said in a whisper. My Lord and my God. He had seen him with the eyes of his heart and there was nothing more he could say, nothing more he needed to say. Can we imagine ourselves into that part of the story? Have we ever even come close to seeing the truth of Jesus the way Thomas did just then? I believe we have. More than we know. And I believe that in the last analysis, those glimpses more than anything else are what bring us to church Sunday after Sunday. I believe we have glimpsed the truth of Jesus in the faces and lives of people we know who have loved him and served him. I believe we have glimpsed him in the pages of the Gospels when by some miracle of grace, those pages come alive for us. And it is as if we ourselves are the ones he is speaking to when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I believe we have seen him in those rare moments when moved by his spirit alive within us, we have been able to be Christ's to one another. And also at those moments when we have resisted his spirit within us and turned away from each other full of a kind of dimness and sadness. Most of all, I believe we have seen him in our endless longing for him, even when we don't know who it is we are longing for. Have you believed because you have seen me, Jesus asked Thomas? our twin. And my guess is that Thomas believed not because of what his eyes had seen, but because of what his heart had seen. With his eyes, he had seen only Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, a man much like any other man, so many inches tall, so many pounds heavy, hair this colour, eyes that colour. But with his heart, he saw maybe for the first time in his life, the one he was destined to love and search for 
and try to follow as best he could for the rest of his days when Jesus was no longer around for him to see with his eyes any more than he is around for us to see with ours. The last thing of all that Jesus said to his disciples that day was blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And I think that among others he meant you and me. We have not seen him with our eyes the way Thomas did. But precious as that sight would have been, I wonder in the long run what difference it would have made. What makes all the difference in the world is the one for whom, from time to time, by grace, I believe we have seen with our hearts, or who is there to see always, if we will only keep our hearts peeled for him. I really love this. Let us keep our hearts peeled for the Christ in us, for the Christ among us, for Christ in those that we encounter each day. Because then we will understand that the true answer to who do you say I am is found only as we become like him, so that we know him as we follow him, and we know him as we love each other, as he loves us. Amen?